Everybody. Welcome back to another version of the or edition of the Snap No Tap podcast. Tony Chikini here, Joe Cardinal, Martin Witkowski is joining us again. We have another special guest today that we'll have Joe uh, introduce in a few minutes, but I hope uh, everybody's doing fine. Uh, let's get the elephant out of the room because you know what happened on the last podcast. And Monday was the big day that I was supposed to meet with the social worker regarding my mother. And as I was afraid of, she can be of no assistance to me whatsoever. So um, within the next uh, few days here, I will have to be making plenty of phone calls to attempt to get her in a long-term care facility. Um, Yesterday, she was taken by a caregiver uh, somewhere going out, stepping out, and they were gone for maybe an hour or two hours, whatever, and I get a phone call here at the house from the Highland Park, Illinois Police Department from a wonderful officer named Sean Gallagher. I want to shout out to Officer Sean Gallagher, who was a, did a great job on the phone saying that my mom was abandoned and at the police station. So the caretaker didn't take care of my mother, And my mom, don't ask me the details because the police don't know. And, of course, my mother can't tell me anything because she doesn't remember anything. Um, And uh, so the drama is just every week getting worse and worse and worse. And the clock is running now. And um, she has got to be put in a facility where – Things like this can no longer happen. So I just thought I'd give you guys all the catch up on that. So now let's get on with a good show. Joe, take it away. Well, yeah, uh, actually, I'm very excited about this episode and the guests that we're going to have. Uh, I don't even think you know this, Tony, but when we were first talking about doing the podcast, uh, Hal, my friend Hal Lupinek, was one of the first people I thought, oh, I've got to have him on as a guest, you know, sooner or later. And I think he and I had some initial conversations, but you know, one thing led to another, and it's been well over a year since we've circled back on that. But uh, just to give you an idea, I've, I've known Hal uh, since I was in high school, so at least five years ago, uh, high school uh, training at Degerberg in Muay Thai. This was actually back in the 80s, so most of all of my adult life, actually. And, you know, I was kind of doing an inventory of stuff that, you know, he has introduced me to. Uh, over the years and kind of his influence uh, things you know like on the show we've talked about I've been to the tracker school well I learned about the tracker school from Hal um, you know uh, working deadlifting was something that he turned me on to um, you know even things like pop culture stuff that I now love and talk about all the time like the Conan short stories 
that was something that, again, Hal, that keeps a lot of these roads of, of, of mine keep leading back to Hal. And, you know, as I was doing this, I start to realize, you know, this, this guy may be the biggest influence in my life. And so I was like, gosh, that's what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is uh, he's the one to blame ultimately. So <laughs> for where I'm at. So, um, but uh, another very important thing that he brought into my life, like I said, we trained Muay Thai originally in the eighties. Uh, but I think somewhere like late eighties, early nineties, he came with a cassette tape, a VHS tape of uh, something called Gracie in action. He's like, Joe, you have to see this. This is something that, you know, I, I know you're going to like, you know, and we watched it and I realized, you know, oh, there's a big hole in my game. You know, I knew I kind of maybe at some subconscious level didn't feel completely confident in my fighting. But all of a sudden I realized, yeah, that's that's is it. This is, I have to focus on grappling. And, and he and I spent a lot of time and we had another friend, Mandy Kim, who we kind of, you know, went out and explored different. There was no jujitsu schools in Chicago at the time. There were groups of people who would get together and work out and, and train over tapes and things like that. Um, but, you know, over the course of a couple of years, while he was still in the Chicagoland area, and even beyond that, when he moved, we were working grappling and things. And ultimately, um, one day he kind of said to me, almost the same way he brought to me, Joe, you've got to check this out. Man, he found us this tape, this uh, tape. And, and, and literally he said, this is the missing link. This is what we've been looking for. And he popped this tape into the, into the cassette recorder. I remember I was hanging out with him. We started watching it. And lo and behold, it was the lost art of hooking. Hmm. And, and I said, well, you said missing link. And I know the guy doesn't look so great, but that's a little harsh, Hal. Um, <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. This is the, this is the, uh, uh, this is the, this is the part of grappling that we've always been looking for. We knew that wrestling had the answers that there was this form of, you know, we'd seen hints of it, you know, through some pro wrestling things, but it just didn't seem right exactly. But we just kind of, I think everybody, you know, I guess kind of, I would think most fighters had this instinct that there's knowledge there in the, in the wrestling history that was, we were just missing. We couldn't get to, but we assumed it had to be out there. And then we saw your tape and was like, ah, this is it you know? And so basically, yeah, I mean, the fact that I'm training with you, the fact that I'm doing this podcast, I think kind of stems back to Hal's influence. Just one more thing that he's, you know, a major part of uh, what I'm pursuing in my life. So I'm kind of really excited to have him talk because uh, he's just had such a diverse background. And like I said, he's had, a, had a big influence on my life. So uh, hopefully that's not too much hype, <laughs> Hal, <laughs> but Hal, welcome. Uh, welcome to the show finally. And uh, yeah, just, you know, tell us about yourself. Tell us, uh, give us the overview of how you got to be here on this podcast. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I haven't ever done anything like this before. I've been called out to lectures and things, but I'm trying to learn how to handle myself online a little bit better because I have some future plans with it. Um. Joe's kind of right. I'm responsible for much of what he's become. Uh, I met him in 85. He was a 15-year-old then. He had the heaviest kick, to my knowledge, in Chicago, pound for pound, as a Thai boxer. And I had come to that school because I was drawn to Thai boxing. And he and another guy named Kevin McKellar were favorites of Chichai Kaobaidun. And uh, I get along with Asians really well. And so I hit it off with Chichai. Plus, I did exactly what he told me to do, which nobody else did, because that school was the most diverse school for martial arts and combat in the world. I called it the Baskin Robbins of uh, 
martial arts schools. Fred didn't know how to take that, but I came there just for the Thai boxing and I liked it. And I kind of fell in with the in crowd. Uh, Joe was a really nice, good looking kid way back then. And I can't take blame for what he's become (laughs) since then. So uh, check your local listings or his blood family. It wasn't me. So yeah, I met him through Thai boxing in 85. I've got uh, 20 years on him. Uh, I don't remember who came across your tapes, Tony. I didn't think it was me. I don't know if I, I somehow I thought it was Joe showed or Manny. And um, that was only the second time where I saw something and just felt in my bones. Oh, this, this is too good. I was rehearsing it mentally and kind of going through it solo before I went back to my students. I was teaching uh cage fighting i got a good thai boxing background with joe and we'd been giving our time into uh brazilian jiu-jitsu um i'd moved up into madison wisconsin up from chicago joe helped me move up here in 94 because i was going to help develop the acupuncture school branch we had up here that's one of my past professions and uh tony i saw your stuff and without even having practiced it with bodies I tried laying on the the nuances of how you torque and twist joints en route to applying uh, pressure to the joints, taking them where they wouldn't go. And my students who were accustomed to, you know, oh, tap, were giving like, oh my God, stop. Don't, don't shatter. Don't make my arm explode. It's nine out of 10 doctors recommend you don't do it. And I didn't even have the hook in even 60 or 65%. And I didn't have any on-body practice at that point, just, just with them in the jujitsu background. I had a similar experience when I came across a book called Prison's Bloody Iron, written by ex-cons about how they <laughs> knife fight. And I tried that while I was familiar with the Filipino guys with their stick fighting and their knife fighting. And uh, I was having my way with them. I mean... I, you know, I was jabbing and I could have like uh, initialed their guts before I backed out if I'd had a blade there and, uh, you know, Hal was here, that sort of thing. It was mm-hmm. the same thing where I saw that this is beautiful stuff. And so that was the second time. And uh, in line with my karma, I set my bloodhounds out to find you. Uh, that was Joe and Manny. Stalker. I said, huh? Stalker. <laughs> <laughs> I will find you. <laughs> Don't die. Um, and I said, if this, if this guy is in Hawaii or Alaska, I don't care. I'm going to go out. You know, when I started jujitsu, I was flying out to L.A. and studying with Hickson. And he was expensive and was worth it. And uh, so they got back to me and uh, they said, don't your parents live in Westchester? I said, yeah. And isn't that near Mannheim Road? I said, yeah. I said, and they said, well, Tony isn't in Alaska or Hawaii or Canada. He's uh, down Mannheim Road a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Stone Park back then, yep. Yeah, so I came down, and uh, I came down only about three times. I found out rather quickly, you told me, and Bruce, as a really excellent wrestler and wrestling coach, really drove the point home uh, that you can't really do uh, – good hooks if you don't have a wrestling base and i had that yinny ninny you know on your back jujitsu thing we didn't train for takedowns and stuff and knew from being around jujitsu guys that if a wrestler put on a gi and started studying it 
they thought, oh, God, here we go. Nobody can take down the wrestler. He doesn't even have to learn how to handle a gi. He just spends a few weeks with it, and then he's going to beat us on takedowns. Um, so I felt I had to get the wrestling going. I was 49 years old at the time. I found a high school wrestling coach I liked. I thought that's a proper way to get the training rather than going into freestyle where the, you have higher amplitude takedowns. And um, I started in on that. Joe took a look. He went to um, a, a week seminar. Where there were annual seminars by this guy who could be in Guinness records if he bothered because over 20 years, I think his high school uh, rate was 89% wins, 11% losses, something like that. And he'd won 19 of 20 years uh, state championships in Virginia or West Virginia. And uh, so I spent a few years on that. That took me to 52 years old, which was a couple of years past what I planned on devoting to combat sport. And so um, I stopped there and just hope that reincarnation is real because catch is at the top of the list if I come back. Yeah, um, well, welcome back. You know, I hope you do. You know, I'd like to see yeah, you down here this way. <laughs> no, um, it, was, uh, it was sad that I couldn't continue on. But again, yeah. I marched and I had my own vocational and uh, my lifetime plans. I've had a lot of physical troubles, including congenital spinal issues. So along with my athleticism over time, which is fairly broad-based, um, I've had to learn a lot about fixing my body because doctors were no help. They were telling me I wasn't as young as I used to be when I was, seriously, 23. You know, and warning me off any sorts of things and giving me real bleak prognoses. And I you know, diplomatically said, fuck you, fuck that, I'm going to go start studying. And so I tried all kinds of uh, different body re-education systems, therapeutic systems, uh, body-mind, corrective things. And after about seven years, I, I learned quite a bit across different things without getting to the roots of my spine trouble, my sciatic issues, and then the Chinese things, their principles of movement, the acupuncture, that started helping me restore my body. And so I thought I'd be mellowing going into my mid-30s. I'm like, no, I, I want to learn how those guys, you know, hit with elbows and knees. I want to do that. So that's when I came across Joe. And uh, I've loved uh, violence near as much as sex ever since, and a little more than that as I've gotten older. That's a general introduction. Well, that's a great one because, oh, yeah, it's violent. That's, you know, and when you think of judo, jiu-jitsu, that's the general way, the general art, you know, we're the antithesis of that. Uh, this is the... Hey, Bruce. Bruce. Uh, I remember you. I'll tell you about yeah. it later. What's going on, Bruce? I, I heard, how's it going, folks? I heard my name earlier, but I wasn't sure what it was. So, <laughs> Oh, it was all uh, good. Listen, I don't know how long I can stay on, but I wanted to at least pop in and say hi. And uh, hell, we met before, right? I was saying before you got on, Bruce, that you were uh, an enormous influence on me. Just roll around with me a little bit. I mean, I wasn't a good wrestler, but I can read bodies well for all the training I've had leading up to when I met you at 49, 50 years old. And I knew you were a really good wrestler and you were giving me some pointers that just made such good sense. And so looking at that 
along with Tony's saying, you want to be a good hooker, you got to be able to wrestle. And so I set my mind to wrestling for a few years exclusively, doing the high school wrestling a little bit later than normal. Uh, And uh, I have you to thank for that. Um, It was was very important. uh, It was a gratifying finale. I didn't get to get on to catch. I ran out of time, according to my own uh, timelines, but um, you were very important to me. You were. Listen, I hopped on here, Hal, because Joe told me that you were nationally ranked in was it, is it ping pong or table tennis? I want to be specific because today is actually World Table Tennis Day. I don't know if you know this. I, I wouldn't know. I uh, I retired from tennis or table tennis in 73 or 74, and I was a ping ponger growing up, you know. Right, right. Uh, and um, I suppose some guys say table tennis because they have the snob thing going. But um, I think, like nowadays, uh, equipment is like what determines it. I think they actually have like a world ping pong championship thing, whereas table tennis is now that you can use various different types of rubber, whereas ping pong is now more of the no sponge and just the pips. You're exactly right. Um, I was telling these guys (laughs) that I always happen upon what I need physically, athletically at the right time, like uh, wanting to find out where Tony and you were. I found out that you were just down Mannheim Road at the time near my parents <laughs> while I was 150 miles away. So similarly here, my brother was at the Illinois Institute of Technology uh, oh, circa yeah. 1970. And he and I, you know, grew up playing ping pong. And there was a guy there who was one of the top 40 in the country in table tennis, meaning that cellular rubber yes, in the, the, old on pong. the paddle. And then the pips out rubber that you have on a ping pong paddle yeah, is turned pong. inward. I came up and uh, it changes the game more into uh, more of a tiny tennis. And I found that fascinating and exciting. So I got into it where um, I got, I was central Illinois collegiate champion from Springfield, but I'd visit my brother. I'd visit my brother at uh, Champaign-Urbana and just, just pick an Asian guy off the street. And he had a half and half chance of giving me a game and beating me. Punk, round hey, ice sissy, you know. Is, is, and uh, I got here? into it. I moved up to Minnesota after college, had the largest club in the country. That was one reason I went, but I, I was familiar with going up to Wisconsin. Where, where'd you go to college at, Hal? My college? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm from the Chicago area. I grew up in Cicero, and I went to school in Decatur, Illinois. Okay. They had a school, it was called either Pelican or Millican. Yeah, Millican University from 68 to 72. Uh, so that's where I went to college. I swore off school because I, I thought it was bad for people from third grade. I broke my oath later on. I got a couple of master's degrees and things, but then I actually had some purpose. Um, so I went to Millican. Then I went up to Minnesota. They had the largest club in the country, a 20-team high school league. I ran the place for a while. And yeah, I got nationally ranked, not high, but I kind of fell in with that, stayed with it for a year and a half or two. And then looking for a breadth of athletic experience rather than depth and heights, I went from the lightest sport in the world to what I thought was the simplest and heaviest, powerlifting. Oh, that's because hard. it was so ridiculous for a bird-boned, lanky guy like me. And I became a class three AAU powerlifter and uh, 
then I just went on to more primal sports, boxing, wrestling, you, Thai boxing. You've been good at everything you've touched. I'm a lousy chess player, but that's not athletic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hal, before, well, before we move off of ping pong, I vaguely remember you saying you beat somebody with an ashtray and not in a fight, like over the head, but like during a ping pong match. Dude, wasn't, wasn't there something where you improvised a paddle? Well, let's be clear. If I was going to use an ashtray on somebody, I would use one of those old glass ones with the points, four <laughs> stars. Those will make the a bad you impression find at on The McDonald's back in the 70s, those were really good for... <laughs> uh, yeah, I would periodically be asked to teach classes at the YMCA's around Chicago. And uh, so I'd go in and offer to um, take anyone who beat me to any restaurant they chose in the city knowing that the 20 or 40 people who were better than I was in the city, you know, wouldn't take advantage of me on the circumstance. And once in a while, I'd get somebody playing with me who would say that paddle is illegal. Now, technically, the paddle took over from standard ping pong, which, again, is still a nifty sport on its own, in like 1952 or so. Some nobody beat everybody with it. And they tried yep. to stop it, but it was too exciting. Everybody picked it up. So I'm being told it's illegal. And so that's when I would find one of those old golden books that for little children or, yeah, a, an ashtray. And I'd play them with that. And one spot in particular, Oak Park, Illinois, YMCA, uh, I was playing the kid with that when he told me. And I had him 11 nothing. He said, well, let's start over at the skunk. And I said this is table tennis boy. You know, he was, he was 11 years old, kind of young for me to beat up on, but I'm equal opportunity abuse. And he was rude and his friends are watching him and giggling. And I said, no, you carry on to 21. And then he said, well, you're just using that. So if you beat me, you have an excuse. And the boys were just roaring with laughter at 11, nothing. So yeah. Or I had a tiny ping pong paddle was like this big around. So that was another way to handicap myself to play against somebody they 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 still do that in some clubs like the ones that serve drinks and have ping pong tables where they will have pros and then they would be like oh i, I could be with my phone All right they play with the back of their phone and they could be somebody <laughs> with a paddle i've seen that quite a bit actually uh-huh. so can i tell my story how it's sort of the opposite yeah. um you, you knew i wrestled when i was a kid and you know high school college and all that I also grew up with a ping pong table, but huh? no lessons ever. And I, I, I always thought I was good. Is Martin on? I mean, I could like beat up on Martin, right? Yeah. And I could, like, wait, wait, up. wait a minute. I, I'm the only guy that beat you, at, at least, you know, initially, like maybe 15 years ago at this point. And then I was never going to give you a rematch. And then I did. And I cannot even like touch you anymore. So <laughs> the lesson there is I should have never given you a rematch. And I could have been undefeated against Asians. How many people can say that? Um, So, but I used to be able to like go into garages and basements and beat people. So I moved to California and I was really sick of like the combat sports and all the weights and right. Jumping jacks and all that. I'm like, I need something a little easier, lighter. So I'm, I'm like, I'm going to go back to table tennis, ping pong. So I, I signed up, went to a class and it was a, well, it was all kids. I would literally, we were lining up and it was like, everybody was here and it was me. A parent, <laughs> complained, a parent complained, was like, hey, isn't this a children's class? And the coach was like, no, 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 it doesn't say that. <laughs> so, but I had a really, really, really bad first coach. 
he had a lot of kids and he would feed me to these kids. He'd be like, come and play league. Come and do this. Come and play my tournament. Okay. So <clears throat> Yeah, you're Asian. Then, you look Asian. <laughs> oh, my God. It was terrible. I would get beat by seven-year-old girls and 80-year-old men and everybody else in between, whether they were in a wheelchair or not. Wow. It was really, really bad. Everybody whooped my butt, Tony. Like, you don't wow. even know. Well, listen, <laughs> it was so bad. Where, hell, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I couldn't confidently open, like, an underspin ball. Any, like, right? I couldn't loop underspin. Uh-huh. I'm a beginner. I don't know how to do any of that. Well, any, any kid will put any spin on the ball. You touch it, it goes straight to the net. I think I also told you this, Bruce, but before I went to a Quebec championship with a friend of mine from like work, he was like, oh, let's just drop by and see what it's like. And they would not allow kids to play in the open this division because some of the kids are good enough to where they will embarrass a guy that's ranked yeah. in the province of Quebec. And then nobody yeah. wants to have that kind of like ouchie on their ego. No, absolutely not. So after a while, I figured out, I was like, oh my God, this guy just feeding me to his kids. He would charge me for a lesson, but all we do was just rally for like an hour. He wouldn't teach me anything. He like, you know, and then so I, was, I realized, I was like, oh my God, he's just using me to like feed the kids, basically. Mm. So, yeah. So I went and got another coach who I knew this was the right guy when he taught me literally the forehand forehand loop and he took two years and that's all he showed me was uh-huh. the forehand loop and footwork he's like you can't hit the ball if you can't get to the ball <laughs> all right so that's all i learned for two years from this that sounds guy. familiar yeah i mean he taught me like literally two things but at the end everything else i learned after that was way faster backhand uh-huh. only took me three months Okay. All right, boom. I was able to put it together because some of the other basics was good enough. Uh-huh. So, but, but that was my story. I had to go through a few coaches to find the one that actually liked me and, you know, wanted to play with me and help me get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had in Minnesota, like I said, the largest clubs, several hundred uh, oh. partners and uh, a handicap league. Like they tested me when I first got there and put me at a minus five. So I had to start in that hole and score 26 points to win a game in two games out of three. And they, the range was from minus 12 to plus 12, depending on your skill. You played four games. If you won four, you're, you went down from down two points. If you went two and two, you stayed there, obvious. And when you got down to a minus 12, like someone who was playing almost nightly like I was, uh, then they drop you to a minus 17. And if you still beat people – Get the hell out of the, you know, the handicap league. You're, you're more right. like a class B, class A player. And so right. that was a good way to measure me. The problem was I developed an overly conservative game because each miss I'd make could cost me three or four points proportionately to some guy who was much weaker than me, but would just right. swing out. I was a minus 11 in their first handicap big tournament. And I took second place to a guy with a minus 11, or I mean a plus 11, he only had to score 10 points to win the 21-point game. And he, he knew what to do. Just swing out. Lupinek is so cramped trying to play right. high, high percentage. So right. I'm bound to hit one. And so it was fun. You know, the, the champion was a plus 11, a little bit misranked. He improved a lot before coming back. So uh, <coughs> but that was fun. You know, and you measured yourself and knew where you were going. And they had tournaments constantly. And you knew where you stood. 
So I won the class B tournament. I was ranked 19th in Minnesota. And so depending on how you looked at it, I was the weakest class A player or the best class B. I kind of like right. both standards. So, so I've been secretly practicing for close to three, two and a half, almost three years now. And I'm getting ready to go back to play some leagues and tournaments. Okay, we can get in your basement and check if you can beat me and you can claim a, you beat a oh. former national rank. I haven't played. I haven't played for almost 50 years. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, let's do that. But how big is the basement? Because I need space. I'm not that My basement? I, play I haven't seen a ping pong table for a long time. My basement is set up with uh, rings and plyo boxes and stuff. I'm sorry. I haven't, I haven't oh, ping ponging for a long time. Sounds perfect for wrestling, that kind of basement. Tools well, it's only PVC, Matt, but I, I've had good uh, fighting setups. When I came up here, it was to, I said before, develop curricula for acupuncture, but also we were just getting in to uh, cage fighting, or rather the grappling. Joe mm-hmm. was an excellent Thai boxer. I wasn't much weaker, even though I was old already. But uh, this was a Big Ten school here in Madison with a lot of kids who'd seen the UFC one and two. So I found a couple of kids who looked good when they were boxing the black belt and ninjutsu and karate knocked him around. Then they wrestled and the other kid was a good wrestler. So I introduced myself. And I first boxed double black belt and <laughs> made him scream in pain and beg me to teach him. <laughs> then I rolled with the wrestler. And of course, he'd take me down. And I'd lock him up. So they were, they were good kids, worked with them. Their friends wanted a piece of me. And I said, other kids will have to pay. So I did it for uh, eight years. You know, it was a lot of fun. I've got a background in disability. I've worked with retarded and physical issues. And so to have healthy college kids playing along with me, that, that was a real nice, real nice time. Real nice time. That's awesome. So listen, folks, I got it wrong. I'm sorry, but I, you know, I'm not at home. I totally... Listen, I fucked up when I glanced at the schedule and then in my head, I thought it was like six o'clock central time and it would be four o'clock my time. So I like kind of goofed it up and put other things on the schedule, but I had to come by and say, hi, how are you doing, Tom? We good? Not really, but are you (laughs) planning on moving back to Chicago? Yeah. What's wrong with you now? Well, my mother, you know, it's going to, it's, yeah, yeah, well, I don't want to get into it now, but you know, she's going to be gone. Uh, in an, in a long term care yeah. facility, would probably would, I would say with within a m- about a month. Uh, um, sorry to get in there. Yeah, it's so yeah. When you whenever you move back, let me know, and you know we'll have to meet up. Yeah, absolutely, Martin. I saw you got the shoes out, so I'm gonna have to get a new pair. But I'll be ready. Let's hit Bender's gym when I'm back. Right. Yeah, that's the plan. And now I know that Joe was. You know, tie boxing. I got to go learn some of those elbows from the guy. <laughs> well, good to see you again, Bruce. I hope I see you in person soon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Bruce, thanks pizza. for showing up. This was just uh, very gratifying. Really, you oh, don't know. Let's do this again, right? You know, Joe, we're all connected. I'm from Minnesota. The way you say Minnesota made me all warm and fuzzy inside. So, no, it's that martini that's doing it. Well, that, that too. <laughs> so all right kids i gotta run and then we'll talk later. later oh wait okay. you, you want to say hi not go long how okay later bye bye hi, bruce. it's it's always great to see bruce because he's just well, uh, don't, hey don't, oh, he's don't say anything bad about another him. thing i don't like about bruce. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah all right later see ya later
Yeah, he's a hell of a coach, but he's a great guy. Even you know, is you know, he's just great. You know, uh, yeah, I saw him. I saw the match that Martin's talking about, and the ping pong match. And I'll it, but for the record, it took place at, at a stone cold Polish bar. So, you know, Martin had the whole like had the home field advantage pulling, pulling for him, and and everybody hated Bruce in the place. Um, but yes, I was a witness to that match of the century. Uh, yeah. Cause I was the only guy, the three of us were hanging out and I'm like, they're, they're talking about it. I was like, well, I know where there's a, I know where there's the ping pong table, man. We can get this match on tonight. So we went to, we went to Phoenix, you know, on uh, Fullerton there and boom, it was on. <laughs> Remember that Martin? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's why one of my few accomplishments. Well, not anymore because it's been avenged. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I had well one of my high school teachers. Oh, he actually, was he was friends of the family. He was friends. His wife was good friends with my grandmother. His name was Walter Bubbly, and he was like the senior national champion. I don't remember if he was United States senior champion. He was definitely Ohio senior champion. And he had what at the time was called the Cleveland Table Tennis Club. And he took me in there once because I helped clean out his garage. And so he took me there and he had machines, you know, like baseball pitching, baseball pitchers. It was the Stiga Robot was the first one. Right. And so then uh, and I, I once did an exhibition against the state champ of Ohio at a mall. I never even was able to return the ball. He was so mm. good. And then um, a very interesting thing was. When I bought my first, I'm a pool player, not a table tennis guy, but where I, when I bought my first cue stick <clears throat> there, and I think the store is still there, uh, a different location, but it was called Danny Vay's Billiards. And he used to own a pool hall in downtown Cleveland. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but Danny really wasn't a pool player, but he was like the national table tennis champ of Hungary, or I, I think it's All right. uh-huh. yeah, Hungary or Romania. And then when he came to America, this is probably in the 50s, he won several national titles. Uh-huh. Uh, but by the time I knew him, well, not knew, I didn't really know him, but I met him. Uh, he had pretty much quit table tennis, but he may still be alive. If so, uh, he'd probably be 90, you know, or close yeah. to it. But I've only played uh, ping pong you know, a handful of times in my life. Yeah, so I'd love I'd love to see. I think we need to have like an all catch ping pong tournament. No, we should (laughs) should film it, just you know, tournament style, and see who gets eliminated first. I think I I think my nickname will be like plus eleven or whatever the handicap is. (laughs) Start. I'll lose. I'll get I'll get eliminated first in in ping pong for sure. I would follow your segue because uh, we set aside the uh, ping pong table. I think just at the end of my junior year in high school to buy a pool table. There was a pool hall closing up in Maywood, not far from Cicero. We bought one and we set it up in our basement. And so we played like crazy for about a year. Uh, I became relatively good. We played straight pool where you sink 14, break the ball and get good at safeties and positioning. And uh, I have an ability to rise to a competitive occasion so although I'd never gambled, uh, a cousin of mine wanted to do it, and he wanted to play 10 cents a ball. We were going to 150. 
and not counting safeties, I averaged uh, seven balls an inning uh, in that, which was better than I'd ever played. But again, I, I rise to competition. Um, I have, I, I dial in. And uh, so I, I, I beat him like 150 to 90 or something like that. I made six bucks, which was like maybe yeah. 80 bucks back then. <laughs> and this is uh, 65, 66. I was a high schooler. And uh, so, yeah, we developed a taste for pool and I'd get out every once in a while. And that's another skill that has faded with time. But boy, it's nice to gather around the pool table. Yeah, I, I really need to get, you know, I, I, I just can't really do anything because of my mom, but yeah. Yeah, I played at a pretty high level and I've seen some of the best pool players. Uh, one time in Cleveland, this is before I moved to Chicago, I played nine ball, of course, but I wasn't, that wasn't my favorite game. I was, a uh, well, I did play straight pool, but I was a eight ball player and I was a bank pool player. I love to bank. Uh-huh. So, so, um, <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, uh, there was a guy in Cleveland named Mark Mario, who uh, was, he was a pro pool player, multi-time state nine ball champ in Ohio, uh, cleaned out a lot of the road guys that would come, road hustlers that would come through. Um, He was a student of the legendary Tom Fish, uh, uh, Tom Parker from Cleveland, and I actually took a lesson that's a straight pool player. That's Tom Parker. He's passed away. But anyway, long story short, you know, I had 50 bucks at the time, which was a lot of money in the eighties. And I stumbled upon Mark Mario. Didn't know it was Mark Mario. No internet back then. Didn't know who he, you know? And uh, so he's like uh, nine ball. I'm like, okay, even though it's not my strong game, you know, I'm not, I can, I'll, I won't get eaten alive. So we flipped for break. 10 bucks a game. I racked. I lost the, I lost the coin flip. I racked. He broke. He ran out. (laughs) It's all right. No, no, it happened. So, all right. I rack him up. I, you know, he breaks, he makes the nine on the break. Okay. Now I got 30 bucks left. All right. So I'm like, well, he can't, he's going to miss eventually. He can't be that good. Uh, Third game, break and ran out. Fourth game, break and ran out. Last game, I'm on my last 10 bucks. I'm like, no, racked him he broke and ran out so i never got a shot in five games against mark mario uh i mean i didn't even bother to i didn't even grab my i didn't you know i didn't even hold my I didn't even chalk up my cue you know no. because i never got a shot did um, you get to shake hands uh, you know well i he think he wanted more and i'm like well i can't oh. get you know well i didn't have any more money more of what your audience more games you know he wanted he, <laughs> We'd probably still be playing. I probably still wouldn't have won a game. Um, you know, he was a really good player. Uh, so, but I've seen guys that were, you know, even at other levels above that, you know, and it's, mm. it's a thing of beauty, but it's not yeah. a thing of beauty when you're losing 10 bucks every 45 to 50 seconds, mm-hmm. you know, it gets to be quite cool. Well, you're just funding his practice, really. Yeah. Right. Well, that's how you used to learn back in those days. It was telling the guys on here, nobody would, Nobody would give you tips. You would never get like a free lesson. You, you had a, you know, either observe, you know, as a spectator, you know, um, uh, or, you know, like right, they call them rail birds or you had to get in there and play and man, but yeah, I've, I've been lucky like you, I'm sure you've played some world-class uh, ping pong guys. You know, I've, I've played against some really good pool players and it's just like, you can't miss, 
If you mm-hmm. miss, go home. You're you're never gonna get a shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you, Martin? What's been up in your life lately? Besides, we got a workout tomorrow on Zoom. Don't forget. Yeah, you bet. Um, <clears throat> I had a question for Hal because you know we've talked about weightlifting a lot because it was you know, part of working out and, and conditioning, really. Um, but the the whole concept of like powerlifting with like a more of a lanky physique is is unusual, right? So, like, did you have a particular type of lift that you would excel at because of your approach or your technique, like? Tony and I, for example, talk about how bench press is such a weird thing to measure on people with longer arms. Like we used Mm -hmm. to see um, bench press scores from the basketball team at the local college, and it was laughable. But if you consider their bench press scores versus their body shapes, it actually kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. So so how how did that all work out in in powerlifting? Uh, My first thought on that is that there were dwarves that came into the sport here and there. And so there were men who literally had to move the bar on a deadlift, maybe just four inches to lock it out because they were dwarves. They were maybe like three and a half feet tall, four feet tall. And uh, they weighed maybe only 110 pounds or something. So you had, I mean, that, that's an extreme example about what they did, you know, in Olympic lifting, a lot of the very lightweights, uh, uh, Halil Mutlu from Turkey, uh, he was only about four foot 11 and short limbs. So his lockout was just barely over his head. So clearly, was, was that the pocket Hercules guy? Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't, but they were contemporaries. I liked Halil Mutlu because he was cute. He seemed to love the audience so much. And the first three letters of his name were mine, H-A-L. No good reasons. Uh, but Olympic lifting and powerlifting generally favors the short-limbed and long torso. And I'm, um, I'm kind of like four limbs and some undefined tissue connecting them together. My lady friend is about nine inches shorter than me, Japanese woman, and she sits taller than I do, literally, because she's all torso. And although my Olympic lifting technique uh, was much better than hers. I'm, I'm bouncing around, I know, but I'll get to your question. Uh, she looks better because she's built for it. Uh, with the powerlifting, I developed a good deadlift. Um, I, I had back trouble going into my 20s. And um, I started weight training because the doctors had no encouragement for me. Just be careful. Walk, don't run, and don't lift anything heavier than a Chicago phone book over your head. And And I kind of muttered, I'll pick up the corner of a car if I want to. And then I started weight training, felt better. Then I went into powerlifting and I did everything wrong. My technique was bad down the line. I had a very shitty bench press, uh, an injury five years old uh, that went undetected because kids that young are rubber. It hurt, but not real bad, but it damaged my shoulder permanently. So I'm number one, I'm not really good at pushing out like that. Number two, I learned my bench press from a bodybuilder that had the elbows out like this instead of coming in to get the back behind it. Stupid. And uh, deadlifting does not discriminate, it seems, against body types. I think the first man to, give me a moment, to deadlift four times body weight, Bob Peoples. I believe. Bob Peoples, and he was built like you. 
Tall yeah, and he was built like me. Yeah. But he, I mean, he had that squatted down torso that maybe happens from what was called drag powerlifters that would just roll the body back up instead of using relatively good form, distributing the pressure across the uh, posterior kinetic chain. Uh, so, no, I just had a hunger for deadlift. And you can get away with, uh, I'd say, a lot of tendon and connective tissue strength when you don't have a metabolism to put on a lot of muscle. So uh, I was able to pick up the corner of a small car eventually. I wanted a 500-pound deadlift. I got it up once. And if I were John Jones, I would have said, I've got a 500-pound deadlift because he just drops it after he locks it out. Like Olympic lifters, they don't want to waste energy setting the thing back down. But... uh, I lost my grip before I set down the 500 it slipped out of my hands. So for me, I never made a 500 pound deadlift. I had been building more problems into my back, pursuing it the last few months. So I was going to make it or not. So I didn't. So 490 is my best. And as I told these guys before, that set me on a seven year quest to try to restore a spine that had made even worse than in the first place. No, I just was hungry for the deadlift. My squat was more of a good morning. As long as your uh, uh, your butt doesn't move up faster than your shoulders, it's a good lift. And even Louis Simmons, a great powerlifting coach, said if you have phenomenal thigh development like an Olympic lifter, you're not a good technical powerlift squatter because we use our back more coming up. It's not as defined from a deadlift. So, no, I was hungry to get a good deadlift in tournaments. I uh, I would place like the top third on my deadlift, kind of middle on the squat, and pretty sad on a bench press. Weighing 181, I had like a, a 225 bench press, you know. Uh, so that that was that. Um, it was a short run, you know. I, I built up and uh, then I uh, I left it. Although I returned to weight training periodically, and I came to love Olympic lifting. I gave it several years starting in 2000. And then in 2015, I gave it another five without progressing, but still I I, I love and loved lifting. I'm not doing it now, but uh, yeah, I gave a few years to powerlifting and quite a few to Olympic lifting without actually progressing, but feeling really good from it. You know, when I was a kid in Cleveland, the greatest puller in the world was from Cleveland. Uh, Vincinello. Oh, King Deadlifts. Oh, the King of Deadlifts. Yes, he was the oh, best yeah. puller in the world. And while I didn't know him uh, personally, I was young, younger. I got to see him. There was a place on the west side called Black's Health Club or Black's Gym, whatever you know. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, that that may have been where I met him, or it was at a, a, a an AAU meet or something. But I got to see him pull, and it, I mean. And he had long arms and he was oh, yeah. a and short torso. Yes. Right. And, and it would and compact with his lifting. I don't know his technique. I'll interrupt just briefly. I mentioned Louis Simmons as a famous coach. Yeah. And Vince looked him up and came to him. I said, and he said, would you help me? My squat's really bad. And Louis said, I know I've seen you. <laughs> so he trained him to do a squat that was more technical and more in tune with his body. And for that, his squat did not increase, but his deadlift went up 50 or 60 pounds. So it was time well spent. But yeah, Vince was magic, especially again, as a guy who identified with deadlifting myself, I watched all the greats because I was active at his time. And uh, 
yeah, I, I didn't see him in person, but uh, yeah, he was pretty special, very special. Well, I'm the opposite of you. I'm probably the only human being in the world <laughs> that can bench more than he can squat because of my back issues. I had no problem deadlifting. I was a pretty good deadlifter, but I couldn't squat. Like, so like when I would wrestle uh, uh, Bruce, not on the ground, but standing wrestling, you know, back then Bruce was heavier and Bruce is such a good wrestler and he knows how to carry his weight. So when we would tie up, you know, just him, the compression of when you push me down my, my, cause I had stenosis. So the compression on my spine is a problem. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was good up to about 300 on the squat. I could do reps, but then, you know, the next day I, I can't walk straight, but the, but pulling the deadlift, as long as the weight was below my, you know, not pushing down on me, I could deadlift pretty good, but not squats. I could never do them. I mean, mm-hmm. with weight, you know, I yeah. could do three squats all day, but not, not weights. Yeah, sure. So that, that kind of bothers me, uh, that I could never do that. But I, you know, I remember 20 years ago, whatever it was in the early 25 years ago, when my back would be bad, you know, and these guys would right away make an assumption that all oh, it's because of wrestling. Well, it's just yeah. the opposite wrestling and all the exercises that I did, even boxing and all of that actually probably kept me going all these years. You know, if I mm-hmm. wouldn't have done anything, you know, let's say I wasn't athletic, I probably would have been in bad shape. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just think all the exercises that I did were, were really important. Now, neck bridges, uh, forward bridges, no problem. Back arch bridges, no, no, no. Because that's going backwards, like, you know, bending my back backwards, that causes me all sorts of grief. So I had to do a whole bunch of different kind of neck exercises, forward bridges, and very uh, headstand bridges where I'm standing on my head because I would get my neck strong that way. Uh-huh. Cause that didn't hurt my back, but, uh, so yeah, I've always, I've, I've always had to worry about that. Uh, and now you take a guy like Kurt Angle, he has neck issues, you know, yeah, so people get all sorts of kind of issues, but you just have to learn how to, I mean, if you want to continue forward, you, you have to look at ways around it. Uh, something that I still find fairly unique in what I'm doing is that looking at sports that are considered very severe. I think uh, the average gymnastics career is something like two and a half years because people injure out so badly and conclusively with yeah. it. You know, football, they certainly don't last as long as the average uh, cage fighter either. But uh, within primal sports, just the fact that people who wrestle, tie box, are gymnasts, they pretty much have the most beautiful bodies, the ones who are advanced in these things. And I think Thank for those you, who Hal. make yeah, <laughs> you're beautiful. Um, I knew somebody. Lo- I knew there's somebody out there for me. <laughs> uh, the body has to be able to handle such severe stress, and so I always try to extract the lessons in there for my the therapeutic protocols that I developed. And so, I say in all seriousness, when I was put into Cook County Hospital to do uh, therapy in the stroke unit because nobody is more psychologically devastated than someone who's suffered a stroke. Uh, They they have the highest rate of suicide, for example. And I I don't say this to be morbid, but I was the first therapist there who did not have a single suicide while I worked there. But I was giving them stability and balance exercises 
to connect up through their spine and hips, if I could get them to stand, that I derived, Joe, from Thai boxing, which is considered the rushiest, crushiest fighting style there is. But again, those guys, by definition, have to learn to stabilize their body, have the right range of motion to be able to perform in Thai boxing over the years. And likewise, I've pulled from wrestling, from gymnastics, acrobatics, parkour, to develop what I'm working at as for what I consider long-term <coughs> health maintenance and improvement. My idea is that I'm not trying to help people uh, last longer, but I want them to live longer rather than die longer, cut down the needs for uh, old folks' homes. I mean, some of our parents definitely need it. My mom went down in Alzheimer's. There's nothing noble or beautiful about it, but we found her a really, really good home. Uh, so, I mean, I, I empathize. I have some notion of what you're going through with that. Um, so, yeah, uh, it is. To, to look at these things, I, I had, you know, a pretty, not fragile, but I had a lot of problems growing up. And so I never really threw down in wrestling. I mean, I rolled with guys, but I start kind of going back on my back because I did not have the range of motion. I thought it could get torn pretty easy. Uh, likewise, even when I picked up on folk style wrestling, I drilled a lot, but I was already in my 50s and I thought it could get torn rather easy. Um, but I stayed with what I consider primal exercises, you know, tussling, climbing, lifting, thinking that you find some of the keys to doing well and thriving over a long time. Tony, you've maintained really well. And people are trusting me more now that I'm really entering geezer status. I'm in my 70s. And I thought from my 30s that I would wait until my late 60s to start putting my program together because I get a little more credit for what I was doing. Um, I thought I'd feel stronger than I do now, but still I'm doing better than any of my age peers. They golf. That's fine. But uh, hell, don't you like sports? Oh, yeah. I like cage fighting. You stupid motherfucker. How do you know? <laughs> no, no, come on. I'll show you. No, that's false. No, no. Here, let, let me show you. <laughs> so, no, I, uh, it's, it's a satisfying kind of uh, loneliness to be this old and not have much in common with my age peers. <laughs> Tony, I think you're going to start finding that out if you don't already, but you don't get out a lot. So now I don't get out. I haven't in years, but the one thing I'm kind of, and I've always been this way ever since I was even young. I've, I, I think it's because I was raised by my grandparents. So I was always physically young, but everything with me is old. You know, like I watched the movies from the 30s, 40s. I mean, to me, a 1970s or 1980s movie, that's a new movie to me. Okay. That's contemporary. Same with, with the music. Yeah. So I don't fit in with people, even, even my age, even sometimes older people than me are like, because I'll talk about big band music from World War II and people who are like 70 years old, they don't know what that is. They're, in, they're still in the Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I get what you're, yeah, but um, well, I, I, you know, perhaps this summer or later fall, whenever, I don't know what's going to happen at this situation over here, but I'll, I'll hopefully somehow make my way back to Chicago. Uh, we'll just play it by ear. I can't make at this stage any commitments until because everything is still up in the air. But let's get back to something. Did you ever hear of a guy named Howard Pretzel? Pretzel rings kind of a bell, but tell me a little I, more. 
he was another weightlifter from Cleveland. They used to call him Mr. 1000. He was a former Marine. I met him once and he autographed the newspaper article. My mom was working at a restaurant once and I stopped in there and he was there. Uh, anyhow, he decided to do, to, to beat uh, uh, Warren Travis's record of lifting a million pounds in one day. Uh, <laughs> Travis did that and I guess he did. Well, he, Pretzel did it. Okay. He would take, he, deadlifts, deadlifts was a big part of it. He would just I can't count to a million in a day. I couldn't keep up with that. Well, I don't know how much he had on the bar. I don't remember, but it was like, maybe, maybe he was doing reps with four or 500 pounds. I don't recall. I don't remember. It's, this is when I was a teenager, but he, he, he accumulated in one day doing various lifts. He totaled lifting 1 million pounds in one day. That's, you know, something that was always in the back of my mind, you know, that I thought maybe one time in my life, I'll attempt something crazy like that. I never, I never tried it, but um, that was another nice man. I, I, like I said, I sat at the, you know, at the table in this little uh, greasy spoon restaurant it used to be called Shoreway restaurant. It was on a corner of East 72nd and St. Clair. I pointed it out to Joe Cardinal when we were there. Um, yeah. And he was just a, Really nice guy. And I asked him about Rodvan. Hey, do you know Rodvan? He's like, and he was like, no, I mean, I know the name, but he was kind of dismissive because Rodvan was a strong man, right? He did the uh-huh. beats and, and uh, so I, I didn't like that, but I'm like, well, you know, Rodvan could do the Olympic lifts. He wasn't a power lifter. Howard Pretzel was a power lifter. Squats and, you know, all you know, deadlifts and probably bench. Um, I, I don't remember d- discussing the bench press with him. But he was an interesting fellow. I, I'm, I would have to assume he's passed away now because he was probably 60 or something. And that's like 40 some years ago. But uh, except for that little dig he kind of threw on Rodvan, because he didn't know him. He just thought he was like a, just one of those strongman types. But um, what I do remember, though, and one of the most important things was I wanted to shake uh, Howard Pretzel's hand. And when I shook his hand, it was just a normal handshake. It was a normal grip. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you shook Rodvan's hand, you go to your knees. The, the Rodvan's <laughs> strength in his hands and fingers were unmatched. But uh-huh. but uh, this Howard Pretzel was a hell of a guy. I, 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 I only met him that one time, so I don't I don't know anything about his personal life. The uh, I, for starting in ball sports for like the first twenty five years of my life, and then going into what I keep referring to as primal sports, especially lifting and combat, not not martial arts. My, I mean, the martial artists when I was growing up, they they just thought I was a low life for you know <laughs> boxing and wanting to wrestle, and I, I appreciated that attitude from them. I, I thought they were just dancers. I mean, there are good fighters who emerge from it, but generally they're just. Generally, from my experience, they're just dancing around the issue. I don't mind when cage fighters refer to themselves as martial artists, but to me, when UFC got started and the martial artist just ran screaming within the first year, <laughs> it started shaking out to, you know, maybe karate guys who had some hard ring sport, but it was, you didn't have to be a Thai boxer, but you had to have answers for it. You had to have answers for wrestling, for joint locks. And uh, so that, that was, that was gratifying. Uh, I was nervous about getting back into fighting when I was 40 years old. I thought, I thought I was done with this. Whereas when I got into wrestling through you, 
when I was approaching 50, oh, okay, that, that's fine. Again, I wasn't going to be throwing down like a high schooler. I, uh, I had too many problems over years with, with my body to want to do that. But I always trusted Primal Sport to help me get the best body I could, but also to meet the best guys. When I moved up to Madison, I went around and saw these silly health clubs. And then I found the Strongman's Gym. It's Ford's Gym now. And I'm what I am, skinny. But they could see a guy who sincerely lifted. And I mean, they would have been nice anyway, but they right away, you know, welcomed me in. Plus, I still had a picture when I was working up toward my 500 deadlift, trying to get it. Uh, I would do sets of four. Uh, I eventually got 450 for four. That's when I thought I was ready for the five. But at the time when I was doing five pounds increase on my set of four every week, come hell or high water, I started at about 335 and I was up. I was, it was starting to get really hard when I got up over four. So I told a friend that I may not make my fourth rep on 420. And so he was there to take a photo of it. And so I have that with very genuine passion on the fourth rep, pulling in on the fourth rep. And so I showed them that. I even had a, a little bit more muscle. I was 26 years old then. And, and so again, there's like, oh, great. You know, they bring me in and bring in this little Arnold Stang type saying, this, this guy was a really good power lifter, which wasn't true. I, Built up a good deadlift briefly. But yeah, uh, guys were always great. You may not remember when I came over to your gym and I was already arranged to see my family, but you were making sure I was well taken care of, that I had a place to stay. You said I could stay with you if necessary. Welcome in. You know, then I go on in the gym and your students terrorized me, but it was good terrorizing. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was the place to be. It was the place to be. And you met Joe while I was there, and you you weren't impressed with him. I, I said, still not. You know, stay with it. And you're still not. But uh, you know, you figured he wouldn't last for a month. And I was like, if he wants to, he'll go for a year or two. And according to my math, I'm good at math. He's he's gone longer than that. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when the first day Martin showed up at the gym. Uh, I actually said to Bruce, I believe it was one of the guys, I probably was Bruce, when 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 they were done with Martin, I'm like, well, he'll never be back, you know, because they worked him over, man. They put him through some some shit and uh yeah, he'll never be back. And boy, he came back. He he didn't, you know, he hardly ever missed a workout. Uh Joe, is this the guy I, I that was there when we came in? I was there in ninety nine. Martin, I don't know. Like yeah, for uh, sure. That's he? Okay. I think so, Martin, right? I, I, I would think so. Between, between 2000 and 2005. Yeah. I yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry Martin. I didn't know you are still here. Yeah, 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 I'm still here. Yeah, I don't, yeah, uh, I don't know if it was Martin or not, but, 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 but when Martin did show up at the gym that first day, I thought for sure. He was bruised. He was – because they were, we were – you know, they were going, they were going good. And, but Martin, Martin stuck, stuck through it. Uh, yeah. Isn't loyalty nice? I mean, people yeah. who appreciate what you're doing. I, um, one of my students who turned into a pro cage fighter, he had a brief but winning career. And then when he got into his later years, I mean, he's, he's near 50 now, but he got into the Pan American weightlifting championships and took bronze. That's nice. He's a CrossFit coach. And another one of mine, uh, he's a chiropractor now. He lives in Elk Grove Village. And he's got a couple of kids growing up there and they've been in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, 
parkour, gymnastics, swimming, pretty good stuff for an eight and 10 year old kid, boy and a girl. So I stay in touch with those guys. Uh, nice. They're not fighters anymore, but they stay active. I stay active. I think I could still kick the smaller one's ass. <laughs> so they want to know, what am I doing? Because I'm still yeah, in pretty good shape for somebody who's so pathetically old. They, they didn't think you were allowed to stay in Madison once you got up over 27. That's, that's unheard well, of. You know, so. my first, going back to Cleveland, my first jazz accordion teacher, Ronnie Moon, well, his sister, uh, who I met, God rest her soul, tragic end to her life, her schoolmate that she went to school with was uh, Chuck Vincy, Charles Vincy, who was an Olympic gold medalist weightlifter and uh-huh. he, from Cleveland. And he was a little guy, a little Italian guy. He wasn't the shortest. There was another guy shorter than him named Joe DiPietro, who was maybe four foot three, four foot four. But Charles Vincy was about four foot eleven. Um, and just strong mm-hmm. and he was in the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame and uh, I, I never got to meet Charles Vinci unfortunately but uh, you know when you, you, you're, you're, you're triggering my mind now there was there was believe it or not a lot of strong guys came out of Cleveland man there believe it or not because you know New York Chicago York PA they get all the the glory but uh, and rightfully so but uh, and then you know there, but there's strong people all over the world. <laughs> you know that. Yeah, sure. Joe, you're quiet, man. Yeah, I've just been enjoying hearing you guys talk. But I, I was going to maybe throw some cold water on this, this macho talk. But I wanted you to, to delve in a little bit um, in, uh, on your Tai Chi experience, and your tai, tai Chi work and what you, you've taken from that. And I know you think a lot of people get the, the general impression or the mainstream ideas about Tai Chi, a lot of people have the wrong impression from your, your thoughts. Okay. All right. Um, I'll, I'll throw out a few things to kind of locate it. I'm, I'm kind of picky on language and I don't even use the term Tai Chi anymore because of what people think it is. Um, the, uh, as far as manipulating the uh, bioelectricity of the body I have no doubt that acupuncture does it because I've done it repeatedly, including with a lot of people who didn't believe it, but their doctor would cover it and they were at the end of their rope, had uh, nerve difficulties that they couldn't fix up. And so with those needles, yeah, I could move people's energy. Whether you can do it with Tai Chi and Qigong, the idea about manipulating your energy, I don't know and I don't care. Uh, I was concerned about the biomechanics, recorrecting what I now know was the fascial system and using the forms and adapting it to what I needed to uh, improve my body. And then I was starting to help others. And as I was studying acupuncture, I got a reputation for helping people who had neurological issues where neurologists had snipped this and cut that to ease the pain and the pain didn't go away and the people were more uh, neurologically troubled than before. And I could ease, I could, you know, bring tremors down more like that, maybe, with some of the moves and principles. Also, Joe doesn't know this, a couple of the boxers there at Fred's school were having hand trouble. And for me to study how they were throwing and see flaws in what they were doing mechanically, I said, if you've got the patience and you give me six or eight months, I think I can get your hand right because 
what good boxers know biomechanically, you know, throwing from the body or delivering from the floor. Uh, Bob Beals was great for that, Joe. I studied boxing with him for a while. And that, that's why Fred had a really good killer punch too. Um, so Tai Chi was a biomechanical experience for me. Fred Dagerberg thought it was a spiritual thing. Wondered why I was coming in for the Thai boxing when I was one of those sissy Tai Chi guys. But he set his guys on me and said, see if this Hal guy is as weird as all those other Tai Chi guys were. And they said, no, no, he's maybe only half weird. And he's, he's training good in Thai boxing. He's a good athlete. So he asked me if I teach Tai Chi there. And I did. And I, I surprised some of the students for the training I'd had doing these spooky movements. Nobody could clinch me, Joe. Uh, there were guys who could play me even, like some wrestlers. A clinch is meaning where you get behind their neck and you got the inside elbow position to frame them to put knees and elbows into them. Uh, and uh, I had, you know, the, the Tai Chi trained uh, kind of a softened neuromuscular system. What you'd see Muhammad Ali put out, or in his time, Mark Brayland, if you've never heard of him. Well, Mark Brayland, yeah. Okay, good. They, they had very soft, watery sorts of throws. And I did too. Um, I, I, I wasn't a killer puncher like any of the Beals, Daybird crowd, but I, I landed heavy relative to what they saw me throwing. You may have seen, um, uh, not Vanderlei Silva, the Anderson Silva backpedaling against uh, Forrest Griffin and throwing out this little cat's paw and dropping Forrest. And Forrest yielded conscious on the floor. And Forrest Griffin was somebody who'd never quit. And my thought was that Anderson had that soft nervous system that different kinds of soft training, Russian sistema does it, um, that lands heavier than it looks. And it can be baffling and annoying. Even a really, really good fighter like Mark Streeter back at Fred's, you might remember him, Joe. He was, he was the most accomplished uh, kickboxer there. Uh, and of course, he could slap me around, you know, blindfolded. But he, he said he found me very, very annoying for how I would slip my strikes in while we would be sparring. Um, so coming off of the Tai Chi, besides doing a lot of things for my body and restoring my spine, where I've been able to do most everything I want ever since, and that was you know, more than 35 years ago, um, it just seemed to give me an awful lot of other things, you know, improved reflexes. I, I haven't been able to figure that out. Uh, offhand, I can't remember. I've got a list somewhere, but it just did me a lot of good. And what I found when I was coaching people was that when I came up to Madison, and so I had a lot of college students to come in, they responded, they got it. I just told them to train with me for 10 weeks and then go to any other school in town and come back and give me a report. And just after 10 weeks, they were able to describe just how ridiculous and shallow the training they saw was, how pseudo-mystical they were, and all the chi building these people were. And plus, well, no, I'll just leave it at that, that the college kids liked me. When they moved away, they even go to meccas for this sort of thing, like uh, West Coast, and they get back to me and tell me that I ruined them for any other instructor they found. Whereas adults, they'd come to me and they would tell me that's not Tai Chi. You know, like they can tell someone who was admitted into the uh, Nanjing Qigong Institute in the People's Republic or who was teaching uh, 
Chinese biomechanics at Cook County Hospital, but they're going to lecture me on what Tai Chi or isn't is or isn't. So I just didn't use the term anymore because I think it's so badly represented. So I just say Chinese boxing or Chinese martial yoga. Uh, when I start putting out my uh, synthesis, my grand program after my research and experience in athletic and yogic background. And by yoga, I don't mean just Hindu. I mean, Russian, Chinese, American, German, uh, everybody's got their own take on it. Um, yeah, I, I can't use the term because of the automatic associations that I think make it very frivolous. You get a lot of old people. I mean, if you stand up and stay on your feet for a while as an old person, you're doing better than if you just sit around all the time and they're given Tai Chi credit. Uh, and uh, yeah, moving and being on your feet is better than sitting all the time. I don't want to put it down too much. I'm just saying that students who felt, well, I feel uncoordinated, but whatever I do in Tai Chi is beautiful. And then they come to me and back at Dagerberg, guys who saw how I, how I could out clinch anybody, uh, they would come into my class to relax and they would say that what I was teaching was more exasperating and frustrating technically than what they were doing in karate or Thai boxing or wrestling or the others, which was gratifying to me not to exasperate people, but to say there's some really high standards to look at here. And that informed my cage fighting training too, for those who were receptive to it, even people who had old war wounds that I didn't know about, old football injuries that they thought they just had to live with the pain, uh, would take some pointers from me on more technical training, on weight training, and they would clear up this sciatica or modify this knee pain they had. Uh, and so I never really separated what I thought was a corrective, what would I say, um, obsessively technical applications of wrestling, jujitsu, good engineering principles. Um, and, you know, then they could throw down outside of the class as they saw fit. But, uh, yeah, I drew a lot of people who felt they had no athletic capacity and turned into athletes, combat athletes. The best. I mean, just the best athletes there are. We know that. I'm talking too much. No, it's... Yeah. Yeah, I kind of came up in the 70s, you know, as a kid, and the mysticism of the movie, uh, not the movie, of the television show Kung Fu, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... I kind of kind of got a weird thing. I'll tell you about this. Um so I was raised, I got to watch, I never, I never saw a Bruce Lee movie or I never really got to go to too many movies, but I never saw a Bruce Lee movie until, uh, until I think I was a junior or a senior in high school, but I did watch David Carradine in Kung Fu mm-hmm. and okay. It blew my mind, you know, what he's doing and, you know, and all the mysticism and, and ironically, many, many years later in the nineties or something, uh, and this involves Martin. Uh, they do a, I, I get a, I'm in Black Belt Magazine, okay? And they do like a four or five page spread in Martin. I'm demonstrating moves on Martin. And so on the cover of the Black Belt Magazine, I, I still have a copy. It's on the cover, it says Tony Cicchini on Catch Wrestling. And the guy on the cover is David Carradine. Okay? Now, that was like, believe it or not, like an incredible moment in my life because I had no idea that David Carradine was going to be on the cover. And there's my name 
Tony uh-huh. Bikini on Catch Wrestling with David Carradine, who David Carradine in that movie or in that TV show, Kung Fu, he's the guy that got me to want to get involved in martial arts. Oh, is that fun? Yeah, yeah. Everybody says Bruce Lee to you know, or Chuck Norris, even. No, for me, I never saw either one of those guys. It was David Carradine and Kung Fu. All right. Yeah. So I, I like being challenged on my opinion of martial arts as a principle. I mean, somebody of your caliber and being so down to earth in your combat training to be started out by that guy who was keeping my students away or my members of my table tennis club in 72, 73, when that show was on, because they had to stay home and see Kung Fu instead of coming out to the table tennis club. Go on. I was just, but I was young, you know, and, and even when I, well, I started boxing first, but even when I started studying catch in the very beginning, um, it took a while before I started to get to the good stuff. You know, I had to get conditioned and while I'm getting conditioned, he's putting moves on me, not instructing me, but he's teaching me conditioning, teaching me how to rip. But, Mm -hmm. and I'm still going through all the training, but I kept saying in the back of my mind in the beginning, you know, uh, at this stage, I'm 13 and I'm like, but I really wish I was doing Kung Fu because Kung Fu is the real, that's the deadly art. And it wasn't until I started learning more about catch and actually using it, not in a, in a controlled environment, but like for real. Yeah. I'm like, Oh no, I could never watch Kung Fu again. I could never watch the TV show and I haven't watched it since I was 14 or 15 because I realized, Oh my God, what I, you know, Mm -hmm. I could have, you know, I could have killed Carradine. He'd be dead before he hit the ground, you know, that kind of shit. So, Mm -hmm. but so it's, it's, it's all, but I still respected the fact that he, David Carradine's show lit the spark in me. Okay. Because boxing to me back then was just a sport wrestling. When I started was, just the sport. And, and then I got old enough. I got the brain to start realizing, no, boxing is more than a sport. Wrestling is more than a sport. This is like you call it uh, uh, primal. This is, you know, combat oriented. And this is a stuff. And I remember my grandfather, we weren't really close. I mean, he raised me, but he was a pro boxer and all that. And he used to tell me he, he had a real hard time with this martial arts stuff. Okay. First of all, he was in world war two and he was in a the Pacific theater. Okay. Oh yeah. So let's get, you know, so this Japanese karate shit, he wasn't buying any of that. Right. And he used to tell me mean, not in a nice way. Uh, when I'm talking about all this martial arts stuff or he just dropped, he start dropping names. He would just say out of the blue, Frankie Campbell, Ernie Schaff, Benny Parrott, you know, so I'm thinking Benny Parrott, Frankie Campbell, what's, these guys are dead. Why, why is he talking about it? And then the light bulb went off. Yeah. They died in the ring. They were killed in the ring Mm -hmm. by a boxer, Mm -hmm. not by karate men, but boxing can kill you. Uh Okay. And it took me, I was a kid. So, you know, I wasn't like, it took me a while to make that kind of connection. Uh, And I never forgot that. So yeah, boxing can kill you. (laughs) So I'll I'll give a laugh at people who don't respect boxing. 
A brief echo on that. I say how I fall into really good stuff when the time comes. When I was at the YMCA getting into powerlifting, there was a small, rugged Italian guy there mm-hmm. with a very lived-in face, powerfully built, and he was doing like slaps against the heavy bag. And we had uh, an Irish guy there, Paul Rogers, who had been a uh, heavyweight contact karate champion of Europe. Now, yeah, these people just come across me. I didn't know that, and he didn't know I was deadlifting near 500. We just liked each other, and then we found out why. Oh, you've got something substantial that you don't, uh, you know, wear on the back of your shirt or anything. But uh, he would be watching this Italian guy who was about 40 or 50 and looked 60 face. But again, the, the power was unmistakable, smacking. And Paul recognized, he said, oh, that's a punch. That's a punch. And this guy approached me. Uh, maybe he saw me watching him, but he approached me and he wanted to put the gloves on me and you know get me sparring around a little bit. I didn't know why. He was compact. He was stocky. And I've always thought I've had a, a funny body. I do have a funny body. But I didn't know that a body like Tommy Hearns with our reach. The man. <laughs> with our reach is quite quite an advantage it, the same thing happened joe when i came over to fred's guys were telling me about how well built i was and i'm, I'm not <coughs> and i was waiting for them to crack a smile and laugh because they were making jokes and then in the thai boxing class i saw what an advantage i have six one but i have a 34 inch inseam that's more typical of somebody six four and so when they're kicking me it's like you know <laughs> they, they can't reach me and there's no place they can run to get away from my kick because of my reach. So then I understood what they were saying about uh, my good body for striking. Uh, John Jones I th- is the only fighter I've known in the cage that has a wingspan eight inches greater than his height. Do you think that has something to do with his advantages in the cage? I would think so, of course. Yeah. So that would be fun. And once in a while, I was beat by my own game. Somebody who was longer and lankier than I was. So, so it's, it's funny what sorts of designs will contribute. But I was mentioning this Italian guy because he got the gloves on me. It was just body shots. And he, he showed me a few things. And then he, he kind of got my guard up and just came in and hit me. And I didn't feel it, but my arms were, went down and I was doing sort of a slow-mo fish dance and I brought my hands up and went down again and he said you better sit down and uh he sat me down I was in partial shock and uh I I said am I going to be okay and he said Mm -hmm. yeah but there's going to be a lot of pain when you come on okay you know and, and there was but he spent some time with me uh he showed me you know you miss here but you come back with the elbow or you you know, throw like this, kind of a Beals punch. And if you miss that, the elbow comes around. Cage fighters, I don't like their elbows, Joe. They don't have the soft hand that brings the elbow around with a little spiral thing that tears flesh more. I had very good elbows. I was very proud of my elbows. I, I hardened, not hardened, but I, you know, I had like lizard skin here for all the elbow and shin training I did for Thai boxing. And I found out that this guy who was training me, and I only did it for about six months, I never took to uh, boxing, Tony. Um, it's a great thing, but something about all the wrapping and the grease and the helmets, and still guys lose their marbles a lot as they get older, and I've known a few. Uh, it just uh, didn't, didn't win me. I had no problem putting elbows and knees in the people. 
<laughs> but I just didn't take to punching. I did it just to be setting things up for the other stuff. Um, so I was kind of a failure at fisticuffs. Um, but anyway, yeah, so this guy trained me. He was an enforcer for the mafia. Mm. I just always get this talent, man, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they try to get him to tell stories about some of the things where somebody was picking on this old man and he'd get them in a corner in an alley and then he would just devastate. But yeah, I just, I, I don't think he hit me full force, but it's like, oh, that's what a boxer can do. That is horrifying. I was just telling somebody the other day, yesterday or day before, about that. You guys, you know, when you get, I've never really, I've never really hit Joe. I think Martin seen me tag some guys at the gym, but just, just with the jab, just throwing a good jab, you don't even have to knock them out. Just um, can do a lot of damage. Yeah. Guys don't understand how hard a boxer can hit. And there's guys that, that I, we were just talking about that yesterday, that some of the great guys, I, I wish that I could have literally, I wish I could have gotten hit by them, you know, just, not necessarily in the head, but just even in the body or in the arms, you know, I would have loved to have felt Foreman or Shavers, Tyson, <laughs> you know, guys like that. Um, uh, because, you, you know, it, it'll, it'll be, it would be like Rod Vaughn's handshake. It'll be something that you remember forever. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the thing, what I love about, what I loved about boxing and what I try to pass along to guys like Joe and Martin, whoever, Martin, especially, He'll tell you because he's training with me via Zoom weekly is that head movement. You know, there's so much more to boxing than just punches and all that. It's that head movement. It's the angles. It's the footwork, footwork, changing of the levels. And and like you said, you don't like MMA elbows. I I don't like the footwork because there's no head movement, really. They go in and back. There's no circular. Generally, I'm I'm saying generally not. There's exceptions, of course. So. I just love all that. And even boxing itself is changing. I, I don't like boxing like it used to be, right? So you still study like the four kings, you know, Hearns and Hagler, that that time, you know. Uh I didn't I didn't like Sugar Ray as uh Sugar Ray Leonard as a person, but still he had his own gifts. Uh Hagler, Hearns, oh, and uh the the Mueller, the Mexican guy, Duran. You know, that that I've got a book oh, on yeah, that. I yeah, try to study yeah. or going back to Willie Pep and his opponents who had a style like Hearns and a body. Willie Pep was one of the most magical guys yeah. for footwork and movement. And that's a big gap in me. Cause again, I didn't take to boxing and I'm not going to in my seventies, but I feel like studying it because of the ingenuity in the, uh, the, I mean the movement overall, but how fascinating the footwork is and how I see some of the modern cage fighters borrowing from the likes of a Pep, a Hearns. Uh, it's, it's, uh, quite magnificent for someone who has carried such a bias against boxing to, to see just how ingenious it gets. And even Thai boxers have changed over time, Joe, if you watch it a little bit, where they box more now. In the past, just as people watching cage fighting, they want to see more stand-up fighting. And I think I'm not alone in wanting to see more grappling like the old days. And we're getting more again now. But uh, the Thai boxers who aren't as dependent on the Thai audience who want to see mayhem, <clears throat> there's more head movement and more boxing. It's it's fewer calories setting up with those things. And so I think even in Thailand, Thai boxing has been altering some. And credit where it's due with China. I lived in China for a while and I sparred with guys there who were supposedly good Kung Fu guys. They were great gymnasts, 
but they were so lacking in power. It's like they believe their own mystical hype from what I saw. I could hardly move my head. There was just like no reason when they're hitting me. They, they just, they didn't have anything. And I had to be careful not to hurt them. And I was already 40 years old. Yeah. And these guys were in their prime. So I was pretty embarrassed for them. Whereas now uh, it was brief, but uh, a female uh, cage UFC champion had some of the purest tie I'd ever seen. And she's still like number two or three in that weight class. And there's a, a new Chinese guy who showed up. And so, yeah, the land of Kung Fu, which is really some of the silliest fighting there is. I, in my experience and with the people I've been around, and again, I've, I've been to the source of the place, um, they're, they're opening up and they're actually starting to put out I mean, a place with a billion people are going to do all they can to get more noticed. And so, yeah, they're showing up with some real good Thai boxers with us, some very balanced game, plus some good ground stuff. So things keep moving. And more recently, it seems like it's uh, going in a good way. I like to see Conor McGregor suffering and being scoffed at. I always oh, hated that bastard. He's nothing. But the, the Chinese are awesome pool players, too. Uh, they have their own Chinese eight ball, but they also compete against, you know, like what you would know as eight ball, American eight ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're phenomenal. And again, you got a billion people. Uh, it's commercialized now, you know, everything, you know, with their sports and, you know, they, they got a big, big pool of talent to draw from. Uh, and they, they still don't do certain sports, you know, like, Again, generally, I'm saying now there's always exceptions, but you know, there's you're not going to get a bunch of Chinese playing Major League Baseball or NFL football. Um, so they they're gravitating towards other things. Uh, but when you mentioned Willie Pep, one of the greatest defensive fighters of all time, Sandy Sadler had his number, man. You know, that's it. That's the guy who got him. Yeah, I got a book just on those two guys. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I thought Sadler was a little reminiscent of Hearns. Terrific power and gangly. I think if it wasn't for Sandy Sadler, uh, people would be talking about Willie Pep as much as they do Sugar Ray Robinson because Robinson's considered the best of them all, pound for Mm -hmm. pound. But, you know, Willie Pep, you know, there's always somebody, right? Uh, And uh, But me growing up, uh, when I was really young, I remember Mm -hmm. Carlos Manzan, uh, the, the, the phenomenal middleweight, of course, you had uh, Duran from Panama as a lightweight. He was savage. As he got heavier, you know, his he didn't have that. He was getting older. But, man, when, it, when he was a lightweight, uh, it was frightening to see him. That man was amazing. And he still – add quick. I, I will interrupt you briefly because, again, Duran, out of those four, talking, again, as a soft – a blend of soft and hard fighter – they said Duran wasn't a counterpuncher, but he was great in what we call following a strike. Yeah. And counter and hitting at the same time. And that was something, again, that people found very annoying with me, including people who are much better. So Duran, for just growing up brutal and having to deal with such tough people. And yeah, he was less disciplined about his weight outside of when he got out of the ring because even for a boxer, he grew up in unusual poverty and violence. So, yeah, he aged himself and had to keep getting back because he didn't handle his money well. But, yeah, he, he had some magical stuff. But then also, you know, they'd ask him, what about going up against Ali? And he pretty much said, uh, 
oh come on man I, he's, he's too big he's too he's very very good well what about on the street he just got this you know demonic mr hyde look he's like oh street street i kill all you <laughs> and just like blood dripping from his mouth so he was a savage and he had again speaking tai chi he had some real good softness he, he had ingenuity in his game that i could appreciate Excuse well he me. knew a lot of dirty tricks one of the one of the things is okay like, like when you throw a hook well duran a lot of times would he'd do this with a hook so he's throwing his hook but he's coming in with his head okay <laughs> so he'd, he'd headbutt the guy uh many times he'd get he'd get away with that you know so yeah he would lean a lot with his head and and that's another thing about people that aren't really like deep scholars on fighting they they just assume that a boxer is always going to fight by the rules but boxers all know elbows and forearms and headbutts and groin shots you know it's just that they don't do it obviously rabbit punches kidney punches they they can't do that but they know how to do it that was one of the first things one of my coaches early coaches taught me because the neighborhood that i lived in just he taught me the proper fundamentals but then he's like here's some this now I, this is what you would really want to do if you could you know blah 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 <laughs> it was like awesome shit so mm-hmm. kind of like you i kind of lucked into meeting these people that were just you know um talented in certain ways some people were famous others nobody would ever have heard of just local guys that knew knew their stuff so you and i hal are are really lucky like that uh now this guy you you guys have mentioned him earlier today manny kim now that name's familiar joe have i ever met that guy he's definitely i think back in the the old days at the old tool and die he was definitely out there um i think i think i was definitely there with him at like kind of a weekend seminar you did that was the first time i'm getting some water okay um the the first uh, yeah that's the first time i met you was with manny actually so he was there so he was one of the first ones to kind of really ferret this all out and i don't know if he was on the forums or like how he you know because it was it was not well advertised like i was not aware of it at all but he's like oh yeah here so he was definitely out there um he definitely went to one of the seminars that you did at the tool and die. Uh, I remember that I said, that's a very distinct memory. Cause I remember that's the first time you ripped on me. And so <laughs> that's where I was like, Oh, it even feels worse than what I learned from the tape. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, cause you know, I've trained some Kim's last name Kim's, but you know, one was from New York, sensational Taekwondo guy. Uh, and it ended up becoming a New York police officer um and yeah i've trained you know so kim is a very popular name but this manny kim yeah that that you know me i'm not good with names anymore mm-hmm. i don't remember well but that name when you said it <clears throat> like this mark streeter that one once you said that name that name kind of rings a bell i'm wondering if i ever met him did i have i met him well you were at deckerberg for a little while and he was kind yeah, of not long the... like i mean you i know might... fred yeah, but you might have run into him. But there's a couple names you've name dropped occasionally. Be like, oh yeah, he was there when I was there too. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you, you know. <coughs> well, the last the last time I saw Fred was in December of 2012 at Johnny Lira's funeral. We were at the funeral parlor, but uh, so I haven't seen Fred in ten years. How's he doing? He was still alive a year or two ago. I just looked it up because sometimes I want to get free and go say hi to him. I went back to him when one of my guys, <coughs> when one of my guys became a cage fighter, because Fred still had me, even though I came for the Thai boxing, he still had me stereotyped as some uh, mushy Tai Chi guy. And I mean, the guys I would spar there said, hey, 
Fred, Hale's really good. He can hit. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would still like to see Fred before he dies. I, you know, I think he still eats about 10 pounds of cookies a day and, you know, didn't control his weight. And uh, Katie's gone. You may know that. Oh, Joe. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, 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 I heard that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would like to try to catch him. He's, uh, he's got a few years on me. I'm 71. So he'd be mid 70s now. But he, he was still alive. I just looked it up a year or two ago. You know, he was an Olympic weightlifter, not in the yeah. Olympics. Yeah, he, he tried a little of everything. He did. Yeah. Uh, I know he was a big fan of Gene LaBelle. He he wasn't into the Carl Gotch thing because um, one of Carl Gotch's guys would work out at, at his gym and just get, you know, manhandled. So he wasn't really into the Gotch stuff. He was into the uh, – he was into Gene LaBelle, um, which had nothing wrong with that, you know. Oh, we uh, did Gene LaBelle when I was trying – I was cross-comparing with the Gracies. I, I, I always do that to see are, are the Gracies as good as they say – well, they're pretty good. They, they're quite good. They're not the be all end all. But yeah, we, we were doing uh, stuff from a couple other sources as well. And then we settled in on a jujitsu and then we matured <laughs> the Mannheim Road. Well, you know, it isn't even, I was just saying this before we started filming. It isn't even about submissions, really. What I, what I was trying to impart up to you and everybody else is c- control. Um, when you can control the guy, the opponent, then you can literally have your way with him. Um, and some of the other guys that, you know, they call what they're doing catch. It's, it's not, it's, you can call it catch, but don't call it catch wrestling because most of them leave out the wrestling part. They're, they're mm-hmm. not controlling the opponent and they're, they're fumbling for submissions or they try these fancy submissions and the world laughs at them. The whole world of the internet laughs because they fail with the submissions and they, people say, Oh, those submissions don't work. Yeah, the submissions work, but you got to control the person. They don't know how they're missing out the controlling factor here. And, you know, that's just so important. You know, it's like a boxer just throwing haymakers. No, you've got to control that movement, set it up and timing. Uh, Johnny Lira, who was a friend of mine who passed away, he was a champion boxer. He fought Howard Davis. And um, I asked him once, because uh, Lira fought, he was on the Olympic trials in 76. Well, he was in the same division as Sugar Ray Leonard. So, <laughs> so I asked him, I said, really, I, I always thought that Howard Davis may have had faster hands than Sugar Ray Leonard. Who do you think was, a, who had the faster hands? He's like, forget it. It's about the timing. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard had like an impeccable timing. And, and that's how it is with these some of the more exotic submissions that I do or, or, or whatever it's, it's yes, they will work. And, and I've tapped guys out highly skilled guys, but it's about controlling and timing. I can't just go get some of these moves. I got to work to get them. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's the biggest flaw that I see in all these other guys that call themselves catch wrestlers. They're missing out on the wrestling part of it. Uh, Bruce is what, Bruce Lee brought this up years ago on the forum, one of the forums when somebody asked him, well, what's the difference between like what Tony does or Carl Gotch or Robinson and, and, and these other styles. And Bruce says, we wrestle from hold to hold. We're not hold oriented where we're, we have a hold in mind and now we're trying to get that hold. We actually literally wrestle from hold to hold. And uh, I don't think people quite understood that principle, but that's what it is. Control, 
control, control. Even when I rip you, I'm controlling you. If I can get your head to go that way, I've controlled you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it sounds to me like when you were fighting and doing your, your stuff with all your different uh, styles that you, you know, morphed into your own style. uh, That's what it was all about with you, because you may not have had the physical, like, knockout punch but you were able to control a guy and get that person to become vulnerable for whatever technique it is that you want to use uh that's the secret it's it's control i'll respond to that if joe can help me and and you is billy robinson that guy who was quite crippled up in his late years and he was coaching some professional fighters Mm -hmm. i mentioned it because a couple of the guy there there was a blonde-haired guy who was really into submissions slender built kind of like me and he would bring up one of his techniques to billy and whatever he told him billy would refine it with superior wrestling and positioning and control in moving in to that hook and uh the guy he was lecturing again some blonde haired guy maybe a ponytail he was in early ufcs and oh you're talking about eric paulson maybe yeah eric paulson i saw a film with him and uh, that guy who loves computer games and uh, the baby face assassin or something like that. Big guy. No idea. Okay. Uh, Joe? Hmm, no. Heavyweight. He, he beat... Uh, Barnett? Are you thinking? Yeah, Josh Barnett. He was there along with Paulson listening to Billy Robinson prepare teach them. And uh, uh, Barnett had become you know a sincere student about it. I wish he'd gotten to it when he was younger. He imparted it on to, uh, I think, a Japanese girl who blended it with her Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I saw some of her fights and liked it. But what Paulson would bring up about the things he had learned and looked like pretty good things. Matter-of-factly, not, oh, let's correct this, but Billy Robinson would put in on what he was doing and invariably, like 10, 15 times in a row, well, Paulson did not have proper high-level wrestler control when applying it. And... He showed how to isolate the joint or whatever better so that uh, you could, uh, you know, wreck the person with more Buddhist compassion. Just, you know, it was just a much finer finish there. So I I was seeing in uh, Billy's coaching there, Tony, what what you're alluding to here is, and again, why I spent the years on wrestling before I, I tried catch again and then i did it but again my, my time had run out the the students who would come in several days a week and work with me were moving on to other things i kind of knew that was going to happen but i kind of felt like i had at least gotten myself to a point where i could have uh, justified your time i was a decent technical wrestler after a few years yeah just sorry it didn't work out but you know the the problem time marches on i got what i you know i got what guys don't get to do at their late age i i'm pretty blessed on that well, yeah, I mean, it was, it would have been nice to have, have you around, but you know, it, it is all about control and it's about throwing out all the performance moves and the performance aspect of training. And that's the problem when you have somebody who's, they spent, I don't care who it is. It could have been me, could have been anybody. When you spend 99% of your career working matches, performing, you're never going to be elite when it, when it really matters. Like, sure. um, you know, like Billy Robinson, for example, would always get out wrestled by the real wrestlers, you know, like mm. Danny Hodge and, uh, you know, Vern Gagne and guys like that, the Briscoes, 
no matter what the kayfabe Man, was. Yeah, I remember him. Because these guys really, really wrestled. That's all they ever did. And they took up the fake stuff well <laughs> after their their amateur uh, career was over. But And that's the one thing my coach always told me. Don't ever think about pro wrestling. Don't get into that world. And he never showed me how to see. So like a pro guy, these pro guys will cooperate with each other. All right. Yeah. And they'll move in a certain way, you know, to like spring it for you and signal you to go get it. And they don't really put the submissions. They don't know like the, the hooks, like, like what I showed you guys, they don't, they don't put those on. They're, they're not taught that because you can't do that. You can't hurt each other. Cause this, this you're working with each other. You're, you know, it's a job. Yeah, no. um, yeah. So they never grew up in the fifties. They were just getting going with TV on, on their performance. Right. Right, right. So, so the deal with that is it's nobody's fault. Like if I was raised in that environment, I wouldn't have got to the level that I got. I would have been more kind of loose and I wouldn't be, you know, twisting with all the, you know, and cranks. So it's nobody's fault. But what happens now is that people are looking at these guys and they're thinking, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. No, that's mm-hmm. the Jackie Chan way of, of, mm-hmm. of it almost. I mean, not that bad. But, you know, and I don't mean it as an insult to Jackie Chan, but he's such a great athlete. But when yeah, he is what he effort, is. Yeah, it's all performance. Mm-hmm. And and you can't just take these performance moves and, and tighten them up. There's a whole strategy behind it. There's a science behind it. And, and that's why when the Gracies first started, they went to Japan and they mopped the floor with all these Billy Robinson trained guys and Carl Gotch trained guys, those wrestlers, because – you know, and and mind you, the Gracies back in the 90s, the guys nowadays are a lot better than they were in the 90s. And I sat there and I, I'm like, wow, they're missing out. They're, you know, it's um, and that's just the truth. People don't want to hear this today, but I'm the Tom telling the truth. I mean, you can look it up. It's it's not revisionist history. They got their asses handed to them. Why? Because they still didn't understand the wrestling and their submissions weren't hooks. They were pretty much the same types of submissions that the judo jujitsu guys are doing, except they added leg locks, but they didn't have that control. And they, none of them know how to rip. Ripping really makes a difference. So <laughs> I'm truly, I feel, no, I'm like the last of the Mohicans here. And, you know, I say this to people, and Joe's been preaching this because of the situation that I've been with, with my mother. We don't know what's going to happen to me now. I may end up never teaching again taking my website down because I am going to end up having to get out of this world because it's not financially solvent for me. And once that happens, no matter what anybody wants to say, real true catch wrestling is not going to exist anymore. The performance modified performance wrestling will be there, but you know, it, it bothers me because I just don't want to see it die out and I can't continue. I got no, no. You, you've devoted yourself to it and it's cost you dearly. Yeah, well, 45 years this year. This year will be 45 years since I started doing this. I started at 13. I'll be 40. I'll be 58 in in June. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just saw a video. I won't even mention names. If Joe wants to bring it up, some guy was here the other day. We watched it. Justin, that was on our podcast uh, a few days ago. I I was mortified what what I saw. And we were right here in this den watching it. (laughs) And I'm like, stop. I'm going to stop it. Here's what he should have done. Look how simple he could have tapped the jujitsu guy out right quick doing this, or he should have done this or look what he's, he's, you know, no weight. He's not, the guy's not carrying his weight. Um, 
and I get hyper because <laughs> I, I love this more than anybody loves it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody's new to this catch wrestling stuff. I said, I've been doing it almost 50 years, 45 years this year. I, it saved my life. It was my life. I was a guy in the, in the 90s who was, who was putting it out there on the internet, getting bashed by all the jujitsu guys you know, every day on the forums. And I'm the one who kept saying, yep, yep, yep. This is the real deal, the real deal. And to Eric Paulson's credit, he mentioned that in a, in a, in a book um, when, when these assholes started their smear campaigns against me. Eric's like, Tony's the real deal. Josh Barnett says Tony's the real deal, but Tony is the one who uh, brought catch back out into existence, you know, uh, and it's different than the Billy Robinson, Carl Gotch, Japanese stuff. This is American catch wrestling that mm-hmm. predates, you know, Billy Robin, Billy Riley started the snake pit after world war two. I mean, 46 or something like that. All the, all the great champions were, well before that, you know, Frank Gotch, mm-hmm. Farmer Burns, John Pesek, Strangler Lewis. These We're talking 1910s and 1920s and, yeah. you know, into the 30s. I bought those books, Burns with a neck like a thigh. Oh, and they were legit, you know. Um, it's not all of them that, that, I mean, they did work matches too. But it bothers me. I'm pontificating now. I'm preaching. But, but God damn it, this, this, is, this is absolutely my life. And, you know, and I basically do it for nothing. You know, I don't make, a, I really don't make a living doing this. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to tell everybody out there when I go real true, the most authentic catch wrestling will no longer exist. And so I'm, I'm just saying what you already know what we're doing here, but I just said accurately that Eric Paulson, a good, sincere guy was shown uh, wrestling skills from Billy Robinson that surpassed what he had. You're saying how many guys were better than Billy Robinson? Oh, yeah. If I look back at it now, now that I have some good rudimentary wrestling for the years I gave it from a guy who was a very good technical wrestling coach on a high school level, I, I might see what you're talking about. But just the depths that there are to wrestling where there's such a reputation that it's just the the maddest dog. You know, the, the guy with the strength and the, the hunger, that, that, that's all there is to it, where I just found out how technical it was because, Joe, I, Joe didn't I make you a copy of uh, what we had there with the wrestling? I mean, yours, mm-hmm. Tony, I, I bought to give you your money and told you that, and you Thank said, you. well, no, I'm you're, not getting the money. You're the one. It. What? You're the one. You're <laughs> the one that paid for it. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, it was only fair. But... Um, we, I, I modified Keith Lawrence's wrestling, Joe. I, I didn't change a thing he did, but he didn't have it structured and organized for people who were first coming to wrestling as adults because he had a milieu. All his wrestlers were conscious of their skills and were good wrestlers in their own right. They had to know what, know what they were doing. So with that milieu in the high school, he didn't have to structure it because it was such uh, a, a high-knowledge, high-level milieu uh, in that high school that really did collegiate level wrestling. But um, yeah, re- wrestling goes deep. Of course. I just, I mean, for the few years I gave it with the high school wrestling, it was pretty exciting stuff. I see guys, Joe, throwing Granby's in the cage. And I thought, boy, their Granby's stink. And when my guy Kent went up to Minnesota to study chiropractic, he weighed only 135, 140 pounds. He rolled with a couple of guys there who were much bigger than him and 
wrestled them even with uh, uh, submissions and hooks allowed. The third guy beat him, but then he pulled back and said, this, this guy's a better technical wrestler than me. And they're like, wow. And, and Ken was wondering who he was. He was the head coach at the University of Minnesota. So it was a hell of a compliment to him about his foundation because Kent was one of the few guys who would stick it out going after the foundation. Ryan, when he got into the cage, he said he never felt he was that dynamic a fighter, but he felt he was pretty bulletproof with his ground fighting. So he could just work through and get his pro card. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, and the Granby role came out of a high school in, in, in Virginia, you know, Granby uh, this coach I'm talking about is from Virginia, but he did create the Granby, but maybe he got it from somebody in that territory. Yeah, I mean, was you know, see, now, amateur wrestling has changed so much through the years with the rules and, you know, and a lot of guys want to just become tech, uh, takedown wrestlers. And But the folk style wrestling, which is, you know, was was unique to America. I, I think maybe Canada might be doing some of it. You know, it, it in its pure form had a lot of emphasis on ground, on mat work, you know, not submissions, but you know, there's so much about the control. Um, and that's what I was all about. Just learning to control, yeah. throwing in the ripping. Um, the ripping changes the whole thing, changes the whole complexion of it. And, um, you know, I just wish I was telling this, I was telling Justin the other day, I wish a guy like Rod Von, my coach, I, I wish if there was like 10,000 students, uh, you know, back then, imagine there would be no Gracie jiu-jitsu today. You know, it would have been all catch wrestling because there would have been so many of them. But when there was like just less than four or five guys on planet earth that really knew this kind of stuff, it, it it's going to die out, you know? Um, and what are you going to do? You know? And I'm sure that there's been other systems of, of fighting, you know, way back that probably mm-hmm. have died out. We don't know about it any longer. Um, but wrestling has been around for thousands of years, you know, uh, when I say primal sport, I'm referring to, uh, athletics that were pursued before there were humans, what carnivores were doing, you know, you run and you chase and you're mobile because you got to kill your food and you got to avoid being killed by something that can beat you. Uh, so of course, wrestling, running, climbing, those to me are our primal sport. And so Things come and go or fade and come back, but uh, keep coming back in former, even though it does get trounced down. When they were considering removing wrestling from the Olympics, yeah, uh, I mean, could anything be more pathetic and heartbreaking? Well, yeah, modern times with the awakening and political correctness and stuff to try to kill almost anything that <laughs> works. <laughs> they hate science. They, they hate progress. I won't go there now, but um, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And uh, it, it's hard times for quality stuff. Well, and it, like, again, I take this personal because, you know, I started this at 13 years of age. That's young. Uh, and it was all about learning to save my life. And it wasn't about points and it wasn't about pins. <laughs> you know, it was live or die. And it wasn't about getting that trophy. It And it was, there was no future for it for me because there was no sport. It didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I take it seriously. This isn't like fun for me. It's not fun in games. It's life or death. And, you know, I think sometimes people don't take the training serious enough or they don't, 
uh, respect the lethalness of it. And, you know, everybody brings something to the table. And, you know, I, I happen to think that both Josh Barnett and Eric Paulson, I've spoken to them several times. They're both gentlemen and, and they bring things that, you know, they come from a different uh, backgrounds and different approaches. Um, and so some people will, will, will like that, but I'm kind of bringing it back to the way it used to truly be before, uh-huh. any, before, before any performance wrestling existed. Right. Yeah. So, um, Everything else was just uh, like I talked to Roy Wood, who was part of the snake pit thing um, the, with Billy Riley and uh, Luthez and I were on the phone with him. And Roy told me, he says, well, the truth was the snake pit gym was a performance gym. We were all pro wrestlers and we would do the submissions about once a week. OK, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like they're there to do, do nothing but become killer submission wrestler guys. No. They were there to learn the performance, to, to entertain the people, um, just like, you know, modern day uh, UWFI or Pancrase, you know, with the works and stuff. It's all about entertaining, first and foremost. Get uh, good people's asses in the seats, right? And yeah. make it look good. Um, and my training was, was, was none of that. It wasn't about let's practice these chaining moves together. No, it was like, here, you're going to learn how to kill this guy. And I mentioned that on my latest video with BJJ fanatics that I was taught one thing and one thing only, you need to know how to kill someone, not just break their arms, but kill them, kill end their life for real. Not like hyperbole, but kill because in Cleveland, Joe knows the neighborhood, just like it could have been Chicago or anywhere else. It was truly, you're going, you may die. And you have to kill this man quick before he gets to a weapon or he gets gang, you know, get yeah. other guys but jump Cleveland in. Cleveland has its rep. Cleveland oh, has its reputation. Yeah, it, it was a bad. So that's why when I watched this video uh, the other night here, I was, I was mortified. I mean, just, I'm like, this isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be done. Okay. This isn't it. <laughs> All right. This is just get in, get out, be, be brutal, be tight. Um, and 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 learn that body learn how to control every aspect of your body first so you can control his body second and then you should be able to uh have your way with someone you know uh think about psychologically people who are in a controlling controlling relationship where somebody's mentally controlling you it's it's very difficult for people to break out of those relationships right well because they just kind of cower and they follow along that's how you have to do it when you're a fighter you have to be so good at control that in essence the opponent can't get away from you no matter how much they want to their minds tell them i gotta get out of this situation you ain't letting them the only difference is the label the label that's going to come for people like that will be the will smiths well you know yeah okay being controlled and emasculated well he is he's is yeah he's being controlled pretty pathetic but my point is you want to control your opponent not just psychologically but physically and Mm -hmm. that only comes by changing your approach and quit this pussy shit about oh you can't do that you can't rip me that's against the rules of that (sighs) 
I don't want to talk to you anymore, anymore about it then, you know, because when I was now, fighting in China, I kind of caught that they said, well, you know, you were willing to pad your elbows for us, but can you stop using the elbows while we're sparring? Well, okay. And can you stop clinching? And they named a couple other things. I said, you yeah. just took away my 80% of my firepower and I'm twice your age to begin with. There's, there's no point now. There's no point. No. And, I, and you can train doing all this without injuring persons. You mm-hmm. can cause pain. There's a difference between pain and injury. But it boils down to you're not doing the whole thing here. You're you're going to you're going to be able to you're going to be missing out, and um, and you can't just add these things later because it changes you know your whole structure and your whole approach and your whole strategy, uh, and it just and I, I just you know what I just don't I don't get it. I, I I'll, I'll never be able to figure it out how people just you know. <clears throat> don't want to learn the absolute highest level possible of grappling oriented human destruction. I don't understand why people aren't gravitating towards it. And and it's nothing new. I've been teaching it for, you know, shit, 25, over 25 years on the internet um, Mm -hmm. that they've known about me. So I can't figure it out. That's kind of where no, I mean, it's just like what you do. Let's talk about you. You do stuff that nobody else does. You've trained in so many different things. And who knows about you? That's that's what's sad. Very few people do. Well, yeah, again, I had a long term plan. And yeah, you to build things up. Well, you look you take the long view. Um, I am looking to start a, a business that will teach me marketing so that when I do put my program, my synthesis out there, I feel like I have the marketing savvy online to make a go of it so that many people can get it. But that's, I just recognize that's going to take two or three years probably to get it, you know, to do that. But sequencing is necessary. You can't build up high if you haven't set the foundation and the first layers right. Joe, you're laying back too much, man. Start thinking (laughs) and start throwing out the wisdom of a child, because I mean, you know, you're, you're the youngster here. In this group, he's a, yeah. He's the say. sex symbol of the group. <laughs> I'm just here to look We're at in you. trouble, you and me. <laughs> no, you know, back in the day, they had the Hams girl on the beer commercial, you know, the beautiful Hams girl. We have <laughs> Joe, you know. You're welcome. That's what we're stuck with. <laughs> Talk about marketing. <laughs> okay, come on, Joe, give us something. Well, I just, you know, I, I know React we were worried about you two, uh, finding something to talk about, but here we are two hours in. <laughs> oh, has it been two hours other than we yeah. have to wrap it up? Yeah. We're, we're going to setting a podcast record. And actually there's, there's my thing is there's, there's things we haven't even touched on here. So I oh, think we can we, always have him back. Absolutely. Uh, I would like to do a follow-up episode because there's all kinds of other little interesting stories and uh, things that, you know, not necessarily even fight related that I think that you two high guys have at least uh, some shared interest in like, you know, uh, I know we've, I've talked to both of you guys individually about um, like metaphysical things and looking into that and stuff like that. So a lot of interesting stories there. Uh, uh, some of the breathing exercises. I know like Cal's done Qigong and you've done some stuff with Rod Vaughn. Just a lot well, of Let me pause. This, this is a little advanced notice. My breathing section for now, I call it cigar breath. <laughs> because, Tony uh, has that. So that's because it stands for cigar China, India, Germany, American, and Russian breathing techniques. So I, I never pass on an opportunity for a good, stupid pun. But uh, 
yeah, yeah. yeah I hope we can. Big. I hope we can one day meet again in person because you know, I, for me right now, I can't leave the area. But maybe if you're ever in town, if you want to go see Fred Degerberg after you see him, let me know. I'm on the way. You know, I, I'm in. You know, I'm. I'm actually. You have to come through here to get to Chicago, probably. I, I'm in Pewaukee frequently. Oh. Um, not to go into detail, but I have a, a very tiny jaw for having too many teeth removed for orthodontia when I was a boy. Now, because you have stem cells in your mouth, which are like eternal children for cells, they can turn into anything you want. And I'm, although I, I'm going to stay thin, but I'm regrowing the jaw some, which I think is helping my breathing. Mm-hmm. And I go to Pewaukee to be working on that. But I get down that way periodically. I have, again, friends in Elk Grove Village that I visit a few times a year, whether I make it over there or not. And uh, Joe, he still lives down there, I guess. So we may work something to out, move, but quickly. Me, yeah. Sir? Yeah, I'm, I'm still in, I'm in the similar recluse situation to you, Tony. Not, not similar in our circumstances, but I, I really have to hunker down on my computer and focus. And I live in Madison, which was considered one of the second most liberal towns in the country next to Berkeley. I'm not quite at home here and I've worn out my welcome with a lot of the people, but yeah, I'm, I'm working kind of solitary and I do have to break out once in a while. Um, I, I was afraid I would be rattling on too much because I am uh, doing things too much at home alone, but uh, thank you. Are you still in the yeah. same apartment that I was at? Yeah, I'm still there. It's handy. I, it's got my two bedrooms, my library, and I have a good basement for my gym. So, I mean, houses don't provide that. So, yeah, yeah, I'm still here, and I will be here for a couple more years until I start adjusting, at which point I think I'll be living in the western suburbs of Milwaukee. It's smaller than Chicago, but more breathing room than here in Madison. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm talking semi-long term, two and three and four years. But, you know, we're young. I can look forward to it. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on the show, man. And I hope we have you, we can have you again, you know, uh, anytime your schedule and Joe's, you know, we can get it set up. Um, and Joe, thank you again. Uh, I hopefully we'll see you within the next couple of weeks here so we can film another month of membership videos. And yes, people, please sign up for that $10 a month membership. Uh, keep it going. Cause otherwise, you know, no signups, there's no reason to do it. So um, what do you have to say, Joe? No, I just, just thanks for uh, making the time, Hal. And it was a great conversation. I'm really happy that we did this. And uh, that's it. And yeah, hang on. After we stop recording, we'll talk a few minutes afterwards. So, okay. um, but yeah, that's it. That's all. I folks. really appreciated Bruce's cameo. And I, I could really awesome. enjoy getting a lot more of him. But I, I had plenty this time. And if we came close to a record or set one for blabbermouthing over time, I'm very proud of that. All right, guys, we'll see you at we'll see you next week, everybody.